We are starting a new study series together tonight. Uh, we will probably be returning to this series off and on as uh, other teachers rotate in on Thursday nights uh, for quite some time. I don't have a, a map yet of exactly how long we'll be, but I'm not going to be in a rush. I'm going to uh, take my time through the series. And um, the series, of course, as I've mentioned, is we're going to be focused on Christ revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, uh, we are a church that pays attention to the Old Testament, and uh, we've done many studies together in the Old Testament, and we'll do many more, Lord willing, in the days to come. And um, if you've paid any close attention at all, which I believe you have, to the story of the Old Testament, if you look at the whole of the Old Testament as a cohesive, unified story, which it actually is, there are many important Old Testament focal points. There's the story of the creation at the beginning of all things. There's the important uh, element and development of the fall of humanity in the garden. Then the inevitable uh, day of judgment in the midst of history, which we call the flood of Noah. And then the covenant promises that God made to Abraham and the the new covenant relationship that he formed with him. And then, of course, the, uh, the circumstance of Israel being really, at that point, not so much Israel as a nation, but simply the descendants of Abraham, the covenant people that God had identified as his own, being, uh, being captured, so to speak, in a captivity circumstance in Egypt. And then the Lord, through Moses, rescuing them from that captivity, leading them out, leading them through the wilderness in the great event that we call the Exodus. During that time, the giving of the law and how that redefined uh, God's people's relationship to him and their relationship to one another. Um, the, The super important event of the entry into the promised land, the conquest, and then eventual settling of the promised land. The development of the kingdom of God on earth uh, under the, um, the leadership of King David as he unified uh, God's people as a single nation. And then that being continued through um, the, the leadership of his son Solomon. The great division that took place through the, uh, through the judgment of the Lord upon an unfaithful Israel, dividing Israel into two kingdoms, a northern and a southern kingdom. And then eventually uh, the judgments that fell on both of them individually and, and at different time periods. But following that, the, the restoration of the kingdom as the Lord brought his people back to the land um, in his mercy and his graciousness. And all of those functioning as a, as a significant focal point of what God was doing, each one of those things that I just mentioned having, a, having an important part to play in the, in the overall story of the Lord in the Old Testament. But I hope you understand, and this is going to be the, the main focus of our study, that there's only one theme that really unites all of those individual elements and brings them together as a unified, cohesive, 
redemptive story. And that main theme is not so much a topic, though we'll be tackling our study in a topical kind of way, but that main theme is a singular person who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the idea being that um, the Lord has designed, did design the Old Testament and chose to to inspire it and reveal it to his people to be recorded in the written pages of Scripture, not so much as just a a sequence of, of somehow, some way, some somewhat connected stories, but as a singular story, all building up to and ultimately all of the parts that led up to this moment finding their full weight of revelation and in our hearts full understanding by seeing how all of those different elements are united in Christ. So that in a sense we could describe that the Old Testament's goal was always Christ. The main point was always Christ. The real story behind the story was always Christ, even though on the surface of the stories, that was not always obvious. And it was not always obvious to such an extent that when Jesus personally did eventually incarnate and enter human history at the right moment, according to God's plan and purposes, he was for the most part unrecognized as the one about whom all of the Old Testament scriptures had pointed to. So what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to, together, we're going to try to more clearly see what uh, many of God's people at that time in history failed to see. And sadly, uh, to some great extent, many of God's people even today don't see to the extent and to the degree that they should understand. What I want to do, though, is I wanted to start in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. And I want to start where we should start, which is if the Old Testament is the story of Christ, what does Jesus himself have to say about that connection between him and all that the Old Testament is really uh, pointing forward to? So let's start in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. I'm not going to read the whole section. What we're, what we're doing is... Uh, uh, we're picking up right in the middle of an encounter. Uh, we st- studied several of these encounters when we were going through the Gospel of Matthew together, but John has many of them as well, and that is encounters during the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus between him and the, the Jewish religious authorities of that time in the city of Jerusalem. And uh, let's start reading in verse 18, just to get some of the backdrop of what's going on, and then we'll jump to the portion uh, that I want us to focus on. John 5, 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. And when the phrase, the Jews, is used here, it doesn't mean that all Jewish people at that time were included in this category, but this is John's way of describing what I've called the Jewish religious leadership over the city of Jerusalem. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, not actually, but in their perspective and in their limited and really wrong perspective of what the Sabbath was all about, 
Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them. Now this starts the encounter. This starts the exchange. And it's not a friendly encounter. It's not a friendly exchange. It's not like two uh, like-minded and like-hearted people that have similar spiritual motives and interests um, having a, a conversation and a discussion with each other. Maybe they even see things a little bit differently in Scripture, but they have a, a good-hearted discussion with each other, kind of what we might call a friendly debate in order, their, their motive, their desire being, let's all arrive at a more clear and, and, and more faithful understanding of what the Scripture is meant to reveal to us. But this is more of a contentious exchange. Um, Jesus obviously being in the good guy role here and the Jewish religious authorities at that time being in the bad guy role. And they have two completely different perspectives about what God is doing at this moment in history. And what Jesus is about to make known is that not only do he and the religious leadership have different perspectives about what God is doing right now as they're speaking, but they have different perspectives of what God has been doing since the beginning of history leading up to this moment and why their misunderstanding of history, and I'm talking about redemptive history, what God has been doing from the beginning of history to this present moment, leading up to this present moment, is a super important in terms of what they're going to choose to do from this point forward. Now let's drop down a little bit further into the chapter and we'll pick up in this exchange. Now starting in, uh, let's start in verse 30. Again, a contentious exchange between him and them. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the witness that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, he's here referencing John the Baptist, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, meaning uh, John bore witness to me, but I'm not leaning on his witness entirely because even as the best among men, he's still a man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And the reference there is that the, even the religious leadership for a short period of time embraced the ministry of John the Baptist but then at a certain point, they kind of disconnected from him. And you might remember what that point was. It was the point at which he began to directly confront them in their sin. And at the point that he chose, John the Baptist chose to directly expose and confront their sin, at that moment, suddenly, mysteriously, but really not so mysteriously, uh, they lost interest in listening to him. You were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, 
The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So here he's referencing two witnesses to the validity of his, his true identity and, his, and, the, and the nature of his ministry as Messiah. And one witness is a human witness, a, a very, a very uh, valid witness because it's John the Baptist. It's a true prophet sent from God. The first true prophet that's communicated from the Lord to Israel in 400 years. God has been silent prophetically in communicating to his people all the way, traced all the way back to the end of the prophecy of Malachi, the last true prophet of God that God had sent to his people until John. So John has an important witness to bear, but Jesus references that there's an even more important, even greater witness to him, to who he truly is and what his ministry is truly all about, than that that even John the Baptist, a true prophet of God, can offer. And that witness that he's referencing is God the Father himself. He's saying God the Father is testifying to who I am and what I've come to accomplish. And the way that God the Father has made his testimony known is through the power and the expression of that being in the works that the Lord Jesus has accomplished. And the works here he's referring to are what we would call the the miracles, the, the supernatural works of power that Jesus accomplished during the course of his ministry. He's saying the Father was speaking through those miraculous acts in a way that is an even greater testimony than even prophetic words. Then in verse 37, and this is where I want us to start focusing on our theme. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. He's speaking to the religious leaders. His form you have never seen. And you do not, and this is a really tragic, but 100% accurate evaluation. And you do not have his word abiding in you. Now remember, these are the religious leaders of Jerusalem. If there was anyone in the population of Jerusalem at that moment in history that should have had the words of God abiding in them, it was these men. And they were well-versed in the scriptures. So how can you be well-versed in the scriptures and yet Jesus accurately evaluates and says his word, the, the, the revelation from God in the scriptures is not abiding in you. It's because they read the words of scripture and they understood them at a certain level but missed the main point of what they were reading. Their their surface level grammatical comprehension was fine. But their spiritual comprehension of what those words throughout from Genesis to Malachi were really communicating, they missed the point entirely. So he says, you do not have his word abiding in you. For, for, and this is the main evidence that the word of God was not abiding in them. For, you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So the greatest evidence of understanding the scriptures, and we're talking here, he's talking specifically about the Old Testament scriptures, but the same principle would now apply even to the New Testament scriptures as well. 
But the main evidence that you really get the point of Scripture and what God has revealed in Scripture is that it leads you to believe in the one that God has sent. Not the two or the three or the seven that God has sent, though he has sent prophets and kings and priests throughout the course of redemption history. But the one being the most important one, the chosen one, the Messiah, the one who is at the heart of all that God has ever revealed, if you, through your reading of Scripture, have not come to believe in the one whom God has sent, then you haven't gotten anything that the Bible has actually communicated at all in the way that it was intended to speak to your heart. Then verse 39, Jesus says to them, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now verse 39 is one of the most commonly misinterpreted verses in the New Testament. Traditionally. Um, I, I hope by the end of our study that if you have misunderstood it, that you'll understand it rightly and get the point, because it's a strong point that Jesus is making to these men. Um, let me describe it this way. What Jesus says to these leaders in verse 39, when he says this line, you search the scriptures, is not instructive, but it is descriptive. Now, what I mean by that distinction is this, and this is partly to do with a minor difference in the translation from translation to translation of the text. Um, for instance, in the, in the um, authorized version, the King James Version, this line, which in our ESV reads, you search the scriptures, it reads simply, search the scriptures. And in the way that it's translated, it seems to be instructive that Jesus is speaking to these men and saying, hey, you've missed the point, the main point in Scripture, which is pointing to me. But what I want you to do is I want you to go back and I want you to start searching the Scriptures more diligently, more carefully. I want you to do better Bible study than you have been doing up until this present time. And if you will do that better Bible study you'll see what you've been missing and you'll come to recognize me in scripture. That is generally speaking in terms of those that have misunderstood even to this present point in church history, those that have misunderstood this verse, that's how it's been taken, understood, and applied. Kind of like what Jesus is doing is he's stopping in the middle of a contentious interaction with wrong-hearted and wrong-headed religious leaders and he's stopping and giving them some words of advice you just need to study the bible better than you have been that's not what jesus is doing here he's not giving them instructions or encouragement to study the scriptures he is descriptively 
telling what the true nature of their relationship with the scriptures has been up until this point. And the true nature of their relationship with scripture has been an unhealthy relationship with scripture. And I hope you do understand that it's possible. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a big book, right? And there's a lot of stuff in the book. And it's, it's without, in our perspective, without um, debate, it's the most important book a person could ever read. Most important book a person can ever understand. And it's possible to have a truly healthy relationship with everything revealed in the pages of this book. But it's also possible to read it and continue to read it and reread it and read it more and even go so far as many of these religious leaders had done as to memorize large sections of it and have an entirely unhealthy relationship with what it is that you're actually reading. Viewing the words of scripture as more a vehicle for you to live however you want to live and the words of scripture are marshaled and kind of accumulated to simply suit your own personal preference. Kind of a manipulative motive in reading what God has said. Picking and choosing what you want from the pages of scripture in order for it to tell a story to you that suits your agenda. And that's exactly what these leaders were doing. And so Jesus is not trying to help them out, help them just get over a hump of bad Bible study habits. He is rebuking them by describing what they have been doing, but the heart of what they've been doing wrong, not just the activity of what they've been doing wrong. Because opening the scriptures, reading them, rereading them, studying them and meditating on them, even going so far as to memorize them is not in and of itself a bad activity. There's nothing wrong with that activity. I encourage each one of you to have that kind of activity, that kind of relationship with the scriptures. But what matters above all of the activity is where's your heart in relationship to what you're reading and where is your spiritual comprehension in relationship to what it actually means and what it's actually communicating. And so what he's saying to them is a word of rebuke. It's like saying, you've been reading and reading. And I mean, not just reading on a surface level. The word search, you are searching the scriptures implies that he knows and recognizes they've been doing some in-depth Bible study. But arriving at all of the wrong conclusions. Drawing all of the the wrong understanding from the passages that they've been reading, twisting them to suit an agenda rather than allowing what's revealed in Scripture to untwist their hearts. And so, in a word of rebuke, he says, you are searching the Scriptures, and he gives their motive here. He identifies why they've been doing what they've been doing. He says, because... You think that in them you have eternal life. Meaning that in their perspective, God has given the book so that they can kind of determine for themselves the the rules for a spiritual relationship with God. 
and that the more they understand those rules, the more that they can use their relationship to the rules and their, their grasp of the rules to kind of, to kind of carve out, first and foremost, the, the most favored places in relationship with God and then positions of advantage in relationship to the people of God. And then he goes on to say, and it is they that bear witness about me. His point in that last line, it is they that bear witness about me is, you have missed this. You've been searching the scriptures. You've been studying the scriptures. You've even been memorizing the scriptures. And you think that that relationship with the book is giving you what God wants for you, but it hasn't given you any of that because you've missed the main point of the book. And the main point of the book was simply this. And he summarizes in one single phrase the entire point of the Old Testament. And that one phrase is this. It is they that bear witness about me. Jesus is, in a single phrase, telling us the entire story of the Old Testament in the most brief possible summary. And that is simply that the Old Testament is about him. And if you haven't found him in the pages of the Old Testament, then you've really actually been wasting your time. You've been missing the main point of the story. Have you ever read a a novel and then found out after reading it that you missed the main point of the story until someone that did understand it came along and explained to you later, oh yeah, what about this theme in the story? And you go to yourself, I never even thought of that as I was reading. I was just caught up in these external elements of the story and I missed the real heart of the story until it suddenly dawns upon you what the story was really about. And what determines what the story is really about? The author of the story. The author of the story has the right, and he's the exclusive one that ha- or she ha- is the exclusive one that has the right to determine what the story is about. The reader doesn't have the freedom to say, okay, I know you wrote the story, but what you say it means doesn't mean that to me. The story means this entirely different thing to me. Well, you can do that, but you've missed the point of the story. Now, with a novel, it's not a a world ender to miss the main point of a novel or to miss the author's point of the novel. But in terms of this book, it is super, super important that we don't miss the point of the one who has inspired it and the one who has revealed it. Now, let's go to another passage that... Similar, um, actually, just before we leave there, there was one other point I did want to make, and I, I don't want to skip over this. Um, let me just reread, starting in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have heard, his form you've never seen, or, or never heard, his form you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. All right, so in that last verse, there are two active parties that are being highlighted. There are two active parties. 
There are the religious leaders that are actively doing something. And in the original Greek language, that's even emphasized in the way that Jesus describes the action that he's referring to. The religious leaders are actively, not just in the past, but even up to the present moment of the conversation, they're actively doing something. What are the religious leaders actively doing? They are searching the scriptures. And of course, we understand by his description, they're missing the main point. But there's a second active party in this same verse, and it's toward the end. You search the scriptures. You're searching actively because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So there's a second action. The first action is searching the scriptures. The second action is bearing witness, but two different parties are doing the two different actions. So the religious leaders are searching actively and the scriptures are active as well. And what they're actively doing, and it here is... Um, an example of Jesus describing the scriptures as if the scriptures were a person because they are doing something. Normally, we don't think of pages of a book and the words on those pages doing something. But here he's framing the scriptures as being actively engaged in a specific singular activity. What are the pages of scriptures actually doing actively on an ongoing basis up until this present moment? They are bearing witness about him. So the sad thing that's going on here is in this comparison, the religious leaders are continually searching the scriptures and finding everything in scriptures except the one thing they should be finding. But at the same time, the scriptures are at work as well. And they are, in spite of the misunderstanding of the religious leaders, their misunderstanding does not to any extent diminish what the scriptures are supposed to be doing because they continue to do that. And they are actively bearing witness about him. So for us, as we come to the scriptures, we should, from this passage, from this exchange, from this interaction between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders, we should learn a lesson, which is when we come to the scriptures, there's nothing wrong with us searching the scriptures, nothing wrong with us studying the scriptures, nothing wrong with us memorizing and meditating on the scriptures, as long as we're not missing the point that they were missing, as long as we're gaining from the scriptures what the scriptures are actually saying and speaking, which is bearing witness about him. All right, so now let's turn to um, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. And this is part of a longer narrative. We're just going to jump in and look at a couple of portions in Luke 24. Um, Luke 24 is a chapter in, including the account of, or Luke's account, of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And then the rest of the chapter after the account of the resurrection is a uh, description of a couple of resurrection appearances that Jesus makes to his disciples. Let's start in verse 13. And this is the famous encounter with two disciples as they were traveling on the road to Emmaus. 
That very day, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. All these things, including the the arrest of Jesus, the betrayal of Jesus, the arrest of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, the execution by crucifixion, and then, of course, the resurrection. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? So these two disciples just think this is just a stranger that happens to be walking along the road at the same time we are. And he's casually overheard some of our conversation and his his curiosity is piqued. So he's asked us, what are you what are you talking about? They don't recognize him as the Lord yet. And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped, notice the hope here is in past tense at this point. They're not holding this hope presently because as far as they're concerned, the crucifixion of Jesus has ended that hope and they're not yet aware that he's risen from the dead. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, It is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They they were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Now, Jesus speaks at this point more directly to their hearts. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, you could translate that as Messiah, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And verse 27 is our key verse, of course, beginning With Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, um, verse 27 of Luke 24 is one of the most important verses in the New Testament. If you were drawing a top 10 list of important verses in the New Testament, I would put this in the top 10 list. Because in this verse, what the Lord does for these two disciples, and by extension now to us as well, is he makes super clear the right relationship between the Old Covenant Scriptures and the New Covenant Scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and what we are meant to understand as we read the Old. What he did for them, and we don't know exactly how long this took, what's implied is it took more than five minutes to do this. I don't know how many minutes or hours he actually took. Um, You know how it is. Jesus could teach um, 
in a shorter and more compact uh, scope of time and get the point across to his disciples in a way that you know might take me 10 times as much time to fully develop. But what he does for them is it says, beginning with Moses. Now, he's not just beginning with Moses in the sense of telling the story of Moses. What does he mean when, he, when it says, beginning with Moses? It means beginning with the scriptures that God chose to inspire Moses to write. And those scriptures being Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The first, what we call the first five books of the Bible. Moses being the author of those five books. And so when it says beginning with Moses, what Jesus did is he started with the book of Genesis and then continued to talk to them about the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, and the book of Numbers, and the book of Deuteronomy. And most likely, we don't know because the detail isn't given to us here, but most likely he did not cover every single verse of those five books. Why not, do you think? How long would that have taken? It just would have taken a long time to cover every single verse and to explain in detail to them how what he's wanting to communicate to them is found in each passage of the Old Testament. So most likely, I don't want to be dogmatic about this, but most likely what he did was he selected key portions from the book of Genesis, key portions from Exodus, key portions from Leviticus, yes, even Leviticus, key portions from Numbers, and key portions from Deuteronomy, and connected the dots for them. The dots were there all along. The dots were always there since the day that Moses first wrote those books down under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. All of the dots were there. But they, these were true disciples, true followers of the Lord. And they had never seen how all of those dots connected to form an expression and a revelation of Christ himself in those Old Testament portions. But now he connects the dots for them. So he began with Moses. That's the first five books. Like if I said to you tonight, what we're going to do before we leave the Bible study is all of us, we're going to go through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and find every reference to Christ in those five books. How long would our Bible study be tonight? We'd be in the Paul the Apostle territory in the book of Acts where, you know, some of you were nodding off and, and, you know, I keep talking as Paul did in one case until daylight the next day. And I'm still teaching and you're, you know, you're fading in and out, but we're still going. And that's just Moses. But what what it goes on to describe is beginning with Moses and and all the prophets. Now, if you're just looking at that description, all the prophets in its most literal sense, then we would be starting, of course, with the book of Isaiah, and we would be going through 
at the latter portion of the Old Testament through the book of Malachi. But it was a common designation that was used in the culture and the, the religious perspective and understanding of that generation that this was the common way to describe as a summary what we call the Old Testament scriptures. Because in those days, they didn't have under one cover all of the Old Testament scriptures from Genesis to Malachi gathered together and contained in one single book. They had individual scrolls for each one of the individual books. And as they described the collection of these, what we now call Old Testament scriptures, for them it was just simply the scriptures. As they described the collection, here's how they described it. Generally speaking, they referred to the collection of the Old Testament as Moses and all the prophets. That would include even the portions like the book of Psalms and Proverbs and and all of the other narrative portions of the Old Testament as well, like 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Technically, it's not a, a portion from Moses, and technically, it's not Isaiah to Malachi, but still would be considered under the umbrella of all of the prophets, because anyone that was inspired to write scripture was considered to be a true prophet of God. So what Jesus did, in essence, for these two disciples, he took them in a, what I'm going to say is most likely a relatively brief survey of the entire Old Testament, selecting key portions to prove to them that those portions were written about him. They were describing hundreds of years in advance before the fulfillment of those descriptions and those events, describing him, describing his entry into the world, how the great plan and purpose of God was culminating in his arrival into the world. So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures. And now that phrase just confirms what I'm saying about the description of Moses and all the prophets. He took them through all of the scriptures that were that were in existence at that time, Genesis to Malachi. And what he interpreted to them in all the scriptures were the things concerning himself. Now, does this mean, and this is an important question to ask and rightly answer as we're just starting this this study together, does this mean that every verse of the Old Testament was specifically and pointedly written to reveal something to God's people about Christ? The answer to that is no. Not every verse is a Christ-specific verse. But he is the point and he is the, the focus of many more passages, many more verses a much greater proportion of the Old Testament scriptures than most people have ever imagined or realized. He is literally, his story is woven throughout the pages of the Old Testament as the singular main thread of the, of the, of the, of the um, garment, so to speak, the main point of the story. All right, now let's jump a little bit further into chapter 24. We're going to stop at verse 
27. And now we're going to pick back up in a second and subsequent appearance that the Lord makes. Now to a group of his disciples, not just to the two on the road to Emmaus. And we'll pick up in verse 44. He's just made it clear that he really has risen from the dead as he appeared to them and he encourages them to literally touch his physical body. And then he offers to eat some food with them to prove that he really is risen from the dead in a physical sense and not just a spirit or a ghost that's appearing to them. And then in verse 44, we have the focus of now, what is he going to talk to his disciples about? What is he in one of these earliest resurrection appearances? What is he most concerned that they understand? which apparently they had mostly missed up until this point. Verse 44, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Meaning what he's about to say is not the first time he's talked about this. It's not the first time he's raised this topic, this subject. But he understands that the first time, and this is true in many cases, and we, we found this to be true in our study through the Gospel of Matthew, many times he would say something, reveal something, teach something, declare something to his disciples, and they just didn't get it the first time. Sometimes they didn't get it the second time or the third time. And this was apparently one of those cases. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In verse 45, this wonderful description of he's talking to men that he's already talked to about this same subject before. So what's to say that this time they're going to get it any better than they got it the first time he said it to them? Maybe, Maybe they just are not capable of getting it. And actually, because of what verse 45 says, the truth is they just were not capable of getting it until... He made them capable of getting it. And that's what he does. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, we're not given a description in terms of what he actually technically really did to open their minds. But I guarantee it was not this. He didn't do some... Yeah, hocus pocus, mumbo jumbo, you know, kind of like mind control thing on them in some kind of weird occult way. But he did in some spiritually mysterious way, he did influence their ability to grasp what they had previously failed to grasp. He changed the measure of their comprehension, spiritually speaking. And we would call this an expression or an experience of God's grace. He gave them a greater measure of grace to grasp the true meaning of what they had read their entire life before they ever met him and never seen. And then after meeting him and listening to them, listening to him say to them, okay, this is the main point of what the scriptures are pointing Two, they still didn't grasp it. And even at this late moment after he's been crucified and they know now he's risen from the dead, they're still not fully getting it. 
But when he opens their minds to understand the scriptures, something changes inside of them. And from this point forward in the account throughout the book of Acts and then all of the letters to the churches that follow, it becomes clear and obvious that they now get it. They do understand it. They see what they had been missing. They see him as the primary point of what God had revealed all the way through Old Covenant history. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father. That's the promised coming of the Holy Spirit. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. What I want you to notice in this passage before we leave it is that Jesus connects their ability to comprehend the real story of the Old Testament to their qualification to fulfill the Great Commission. It doesn't mean that the Great Commission is exclusively only talking about the Old Testament. But it does mean that unless you really grasp the main point of what the Old Testament was all about, how can you effectively then communicate that story as it's come to its fulfillment point in history with his incarnation, with his perfect life lived in this world with his sacrifice on the cross and then his resurrection from the dead how can you fully describe and declare the meaning of that to the people that most need to hear it unless you understand all of the backstory that led up to it he links great commission effectiveness to a right understanding of the main point of the old testament revelation of God in what we call the scriptures. Now, let's fast forward to the book of Acts. And let's jump ahead. We're just starting, of course, our, our study through the book of Acts. Let's jump ahead to a portion we're not going to be at for quite some time, chapter 17. And I'm going to read this portion, briefly describe it, and then I'm going to give you a list for those who like to take notes. I'm going to give you a list of other references in the book of Acts besides just this one, because I chose this one just as a representative of what we're going to find over and over and over and over again as we study through the book of Acts, which is, as the gospel is being proclaimed, they, the apostles commonly refer to Christ as the fulfillment of what the Old Testament was revealing. And it's one of the main elements, recurring elements in their preaching of the gospel. And it's possible for believers today to look at that pattern and say, well, of course they needed to do that because that was back in the days when the Old Testament were really the only scriptures that had been revealed. And so it was important to link that to the New Testament fulfillment of Christ and When we preach the gospel today, we don't even need to think about communicating anything about the Old Testament because we have the New Testament. But it's really missing the point of why this is a recurring pattern. Again, the fulfillment of the story in the arrival of Christ and all that he accomplished 
is the main point, but the backstory that leads up to the fulfillment is super important. Um, let me let me reference uh, a liter a literary uh, example. Um, I've described before that I'm a fan of Tolkien and the the Lord of the Rings epic story. Just in case you're not sure, it it wasn't real, didn't actually happen. It's just a made up story but it's one of the better made-up stories in all of human history, in my opinion. So there's, there's certain key moments in the telling of the Lord of the Rings story that are what we would call crescendo moments. These are the, these are the, the world-changing moments. Like the greatest one in the entire story is when Frodo, who's been bearing the weight of this this ring of power throughout the entire epic, he finally reaches the, the location which is known as Mount Doom and his, his assignment is to throw the ring into the, the fires, the lava fires of Mount Doom so that the ring can be destroyed and the world can be set free from the evil influences of the ring and the one that had originally created it. And, you know, there's a whole story about his struggle to do so when it reaches that moment. But eventually, and I don't want to spoil the whole story for you, eventually the ring actually does get into the fire and it does, does get destroyed. That's a crescendo moment. It's what the real, the whole story is really all about that moment. But if you were to say to someone, have you ever read The Lord of the Rings? And they say, no, I've never read it. You say, you, you need to read this story. You need to read this. It's, so, it's such a great story. And so you hand them a copy of The Lord of the Rings and they jump right to that moment and read that moment and somewhat grasp the drama of the moment because it's so well written in that moment of the story. But they haven't read anything that led up to that point. Will it mean the same thing to them as it means to you? Who's read from chapter 1, verse 1, word 1, the entire story leading up to that fateful moment where the ring actually is thrown into the fire? It won't mean the same. It won't have the same impactful influence on your heart and your understanding if you leave out the whole buildup, the whole backstory that brings us to that moment. And it's as dramatic as it is because of the backstory that leads to that moment. So this passage in Acts 17 is just one example. I'll read it and then I'll give you a brief list of others in Acts. We won't take time to read each one of the passages. This is Paul and Silas on their apostolic journey. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Which scriptures? The only ones in existence at that moment in history were Genesis to Malachi. There were no New Testament scriptures written yet. So on three successive Sabbath days, he went into the Jewish synagogue and reasoned with the the faithful Jewish people that were there 
most likely including the, the Jewish synagogue leadership, he reasoned with them from Genesis to Malachi, explaining and proving from references to specific passages of Scripture that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Messiah. And his point is, he, I'm proving to you that Jesus is the Messiah and I'm proving it to you from all of the messianic references found from Genesis to Malachi. And for Paul, like me, it took a little bit more time than what Jesus did with those disciples on the road to, to Emmaus. It took him going back and having three successive discussions and studies and debates with these individuals on three successive Sabbath days. But his point, his, the point that I want to draw from this passage is Paul's entire, what we would call evangelistic ministry, was focused on connecting the dots in Scripture, pointing to Jesus in a way that these men had seen the dots, but never saw how they were connected and linked to each other. Now, I mentioned I'd give you a list of some other scriptures in Acts. Each one of these has a similar kind of story to tell as the one in Acts 17. And eventually, we will cover all of these together in our Sunday studies. Uh, Acts chapter 2, this is Day of Pentecost, of course. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 36, large section, but Peter draws out some very important Old Testament elements and points them to Christ as, his, as the fulfillment. Acts 4, 23 to 28. Acts 13, 26 to 37. And then uh, jumping past 17, Acts 18, 24 through 28. Now, the ones that I've just given you are not exhaustive. There are more references in the book of Acts than the ones in this list, but this is a good representative list of the most important uh, Old Testament, New Testament connections that the apostles were drawing. All right, so at this point in our consideration, how extensive is this study of Christ in the Old Testament? Let's turn to the book of Colossians. I mentioned this, this, we're not going to find Christ in every single verse of the Old Testament, but how extensive is our discovery going to be if we're actually seeing what we're supposed to see? This passage is helpful. We're reading in um, Colossians 2, 16. This is a word of encouragement to the Colossian church, which was being troubled by some, some uh, religious leaders that had come from outside the church and were trying to lead them astray uh, in a legalistic way. And Paul says to the church, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Those are all Old Testament law elements that were required of the people of God in the Old Covenant era, but now are not required of people in the New Covenant in the same way. And so Paul encourages them, don't let these religious leaders pass judgment on you to manipulatively lead you astray and back to an old covenant approach to the festivals and the new moons and the Sabbaths. But here he's not just giving them a warning about the dangers of legalism. He adds an additional element in verse 17, meaning 
His point is these religious leaders that are doing this, they've missed the entire point of what the Old Testament festivals, and when we say Old Testament festivals, what are we talking about? We're talking about the seven great feasts that God ordained for his people, spiritual feasts, religious feasts, that he ordained for his people to celebrate. And the new moon had to do with the way they organize their calendar, their yearly calendar. And the Sabbath, of course, being the, the, the most important and the primary weekly reminder of God's relation, uh, the people's relationship to their God. And he says in verse 17, these, and so he's including all of the Old Testament feasts, He's including the entire Old Testament religious calendar that structured their entire year of living out their lives before the Lord, before the Lord. And he includes the, the right understanding of the Sabbath. He says, these, all of these are a shadow of the things to come. Now, um, you all understand what a shadow is. What's the importance of a shadow? What's the significance of a shadow? A shadow is simply like, you know, I'm looking here on the floor because there's a light behind me. I can see on the floor a a shadowy expression of me. It's somehow related to me, connected to me, but not, it's not exactly me, is it? It's, it's, It's a somewhat accurate representation of my outline, my basic form. But at the same time, it's not actually me. So Paul says the Old Testament feast days, all seven of them, the Old Testament spiritual calendar, which was required in the law of God to be followed, and the most single most important day of the week, the Sabbath day, all of these are actually now and always were intended to be only a shadow of the things to come. So I've used this example before. It's like if, uh, like if, you're, if, you're, if you're watching a, a theater production, you know, like a play on a stage, and there's lighting such that as a character is coming from off stage in the wings, so to speak, and they're coming to stand center stage and become the focal point of the play. If the lighting is cast behind them, what will arrive on the stage before the actor actually is visible on the stage? You'll see their shadow hit the stage first And it's meant to do something, which is to alert you. The dramatic lighting is meant to just alert you and kind of kind of get you ready for the arrival of the actor that's going to then deliver their important part in the play. Paul is saying that all of those Old Testament elements were only a shadow of things to come. And really, it's not even though he uses the word because he's referring to multiple things multiple feast days, multiple days on a calendar, multiple Sabbath days in their life experience. So he says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but really the things to come are actually only one thing that's casting all of those shadows. 
These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, the substance here, literally the word that he uses in the, in the original text is the body. The body that's casting these shadows belongs to Christ. He's, he is what the feast days were all about. He is what the calendar of the new moons, the religious calendar of Old Testament Israel, was all about. He is the point of the Sabbath day. And if you, if you disconnect him from the festivals, the feast days, the calendar, and the Sabbath days, you're left with the shadows, but you've now lost the substance of what was casting those shadows, and now you only have emptiness at the end. Because the shadow cannot ultimately satisfy. The shadow cannot ultimately fulfill. Unless you see the right relationship between the shadow and the body that's casting the shadow. Now, what that implies is that Christ is, as I said at the very beginning, he is the main point. He is the point of the Old Testament. Now, let's look at at one last example. And... We certainly don't have time to do anything exhaustive here. I just wanted to give you an example. Christ is found, not in every verse of the Old Testament, but he is found what I'm going to describe as cover to cover in the Old Testament. So let's look at the very beginning of the book. And several of you have already, in fact, probably everyone in the room has noticed this connection before, but I just want to use it as a reminder uh, as we're as we're going to be moving forward. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. This is the, the account of creation. In, and we'll, by the way, when we get into the details of our study in the weeks to come, we'll revisit this passage and look at it in more depth. But right here, what I want you to notice is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right? Keep your place there. Turn over to the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, verse 1. And of course, John was among that group that fateful day when the Lord Jesus appeared in their midst and opened their minds to understand in the Scriptures the things that were written concerning him. This is how John starts his Gospel account. It's not accidental. It's not coincidental. It is specifically spiritually purposeful. He starts his gospel this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So let me read again Genesis 1.1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is John doing? He is linking the story of Christ to the story of creation. And he's saying that in the original account of creation, if you don't understand the role of Christ and how even when God made everything that he made, he had Christ foremost in his perspective as he was doing so. And that all of this is pointing to him from before the beginning of history as we know it, 
until the very end of history itself. From cover to cover. We could, I, I won't take us there, but I'll, I'll just reference the very last chapter. I just read from the very first chapter. The very last chapter of the Old Testament is, of course, the book of Malachi in chapter 4. And we did, this has been a couple of years now, but we did study through the entire book of Malachi together on Thursday night. And so uh, those studies are available for you in chapter 4. But there are two critically important references in the last chapter of Malachi that point directly to Christ. Point directly to him as the coming fulfillment, with Malachi being the last prophet to speak from God until John the Baptist arrives to introduce Christ into this world. And there are two critically important things revealed about Christ in that last chapter of Malachi. So from Genesis 1 to Malachi 4, and in so many important and significant passages in between, Christ is the point and the goal of the Old Testament. Now, how are we going to tackle this study? We're going to look at three main categories, and we're going to take them in turn. Uh, Christ is revealed in the Old Testament through these three primary categories. First, prophecies, meaning God describing in advance what would happen when Jesus would come into this world, who he would be, what he would be like, what he would accomplish, and how God's great plan and purpose of redemption would be fulfilled by him. So we will look at the prophecies of Christ. Will we study every Old Testament prophecy of Christ? Probably not. Um, There was one famous uh, Jewish Christian scholar from an earlier generation, a man by the name of Alfred Edersheim, who uh, I have his books and they're just excellent They're excellent reference books on Old Testament studies and finding Christ in the Old Testament. Edersheim, who made it his life work to study the Old Testament scriptures, looking for Christ in the Old Testament, found, and I'm not saying his his list is the perfect list, but this is representative. He found 456 Old Testament references to Christ. So we won't study each one of the prophecies, but I will take us through all of the most important prophecies pointing to Christ. Second category of Old Testament, um, how the Old Testament tells the story of Christ is what we call, and we have talked about this concept before, what we call Christophanies, which are the actual appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. And I've made an emphasis before that uh, when Christ was born as a baby in Bethlehem, is not the first time he entered into the world. It's the first time he entered into this world as a human being, but it's not even the first time he entered into the world in the form of a human being. So many times throughout the Old Testament, he took the form of of a human being and appeared to his people, and he took other forms other than human form as well. And each one of those are what we call the special appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. We'll look at all of the most important ones of the Christophanies. And then the third category is we will study, this is the broadest category and it's the most extensive one, and we won't have time to look exhaustively at this, but I'll pick out the most important representations of each one of these. We'll look at the types and shadows that point to Christ found throughout the Old Testament, like Paul's reference in Colossians to the feast days, for instance, the seven great 
law feast days that were required of God's people in the law of Moses, each one of those feasts points to Christ in its own specific and important way. Those are shadows. So in that, we're going to look at how there are people of the Old Testament that are not Christ, but represent him symbolically, typologically. We're going to look at how certain special places represent Christ in ways that other places don't. We're going to look at how certain things, specific actual items, represent Christ in a special way. We're going to look at how certain very important events, redemptive events, significant events point to Christ. And then we'll look in a representative way at how the law points to Christ. And that alone is a a huge study because remember there are 613 individual laws and every single one of those laws in some way does point to Christ. But we'll look at some of the most important examples of that. So uh, what's the goal of our study? It's to cover some of each one of these primary categories of study. And my goal is to equip you for the rest of your lives to recognize Christ more readily, more accurately, as he is already being revealed in the Old Testament. Remember, as Jesus described it, the scriptures are actively bearing witness to him. We're going to look for the dots, and then we're going to try to draw the right lines connecting the dots in the right way. All right, God bless you. I look forward to seeing you back here next Thursday night, and we'll start with the prophecies pointing to the arrival of the Lord.